All right, away we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Recoil Live, sponsored by FN. This episode, I've got our off-grid web editor, Patrick McCarthy, with us, and we're going to talk a little bit about training. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and where you come from and how you came into off-grid in the first place? Yeah, so uh, uh, I was just thinking about this the other day. It's been 45 issues uh, that I've been working on off-grid, so Ooh. probably about eight years now. Um, nice. But yeah, I uh, uh, had a pretty normal upbringing. I grew up in a middle-class home in Southern California. Um, parents weren't really uh, into the, the gun side of things necessarily, not, not against it by any means, but just not uh, gun people per se, um, or survivalists for that matter. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I uh, grew up uh, reading a lot of books, magazines, uh, always thought it would be really cool to uh, work as an editor. Um, saw, I specifically wrote in track magazine. I read as a kid all the time and I saw what those editors were doing, flying around the country and driving supercars and, uh, writing about their experiences. And I thought that would be the coolest thing. Uh, it always seemed super unattainable. It was like, you know, being an astronaut or something like that. Uh, so I, I, I didn't see myself going into that line of work, but, uh, fast forward many years, I graduated from college, uh, was in the economic recession, kind of looking around for work and, uh, happened to uh, have a family connection with somebody who was working for Truckin' Magazine at the time, Automotive Magazine. Uh, and so I started doing some freelance work for him, and that uh, gradually developed into more of a regular gig. And so I worked for Truckin' Magazine for a few years as an associate editor. Um, and then uh, from there, the uh, company kind of restructured, ended up um, Patrick Vong, who was the original editor of Offgrid. Uh, he and I kind of became friends because we shared a cubicle area uh, in the office and then, uh, you know, shared interests in EDC gear and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, that turned into a freelance gig with him and then uh, came on full time. So yeah, I've been doing that for eight years. Time flies. That's awesome. I remember, uh, I remember reading like guns and ammo and guns magazine and, yeah. and all, all the, all the, the, industry rags that we had in the in the 90s and kind of thinking the same thing right like oh man like these guys get to shoot everybody's yeah. brand new guns for a living like that's their job it must be must be awesome i don't know how you wind up in that and here we are yeah. so uh, did you did you go to school for journalism or communications or anything like that no nothing like that um actually i never really thought i would get into writing professionally at all because I, I never found writing to be something that i would enjoy honestly um just because all the writing that I had done to that point was like book reports and things that like I had zero interest in for the most part, um, or like more technical type stuff. Um, and so when I started doing it about subjects that I was passionate about cars and guns and EDC gear and all that, um, I, I really found myself enjoying it, which almost surprised me. Yeah, I, I think, I think sometimes writing is like math in that people immediately say that they're bad at it. And a lot of people wind up being yeah, much, much better than they think they are. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So we're, I, I know you, you'd mentioned that, that you weren't a, a kind of from a big gun centric family. Um, yeah. Was firearms a component for you at all in any way in your childhood or, or did you come into that kind of later on as you got into the, the off grid side of things? A little bit of both. I mean, my dad and I went to the uh, local indoor shooting range a few times when I was a kid. Um, we went skeet shooting with friends a couple of times, that kind of thing. 
um, but never real seriously, never as like a, a training uh, aspect of firearms. It was just like a go out and shoot a couple rounds occasionally. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of started getting into to it as a hobby, like I would say after college roughly. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna dime you out here a little bit, only because we were actually just talking about this. But yeah. uh, I, I know that uh, I do know you went through a went through an airsoft period as well. I did. Which yeah. you know, again, we were just what was it yesterday? We were just talking about how that is, you know, it used to get sort of written off by the gun community at large. Right. Now, uh, I just had uh, I just had a, a, an executive protection trainer tell me that you know they use airsoft exclusively for force on force right uh, and he's not the first one to tell me that and and i think that there is the, it's it's a uh, i think there's an argument to be made for airsoft being a gateway drug yeah yeah i mean um back when i was in high school uh like a lot of kids i got into uh first person shooter video games played a lot of counter-strike back in the day 1.6 oh uh, man you're and, dating uh, yourself with counter-strike I, I know right i remember installing steam for the first time but yeah um so played played a lot of first person shooters, Call of Duty and Counter Strike, and then kind of that got me into uh, the airsoft side of things a little bit. Um, I had some friends in high school who were into the into it more as like a mill sim rather than just like goofing around. Um, and so you know, kind of got me into gear, got me into accessorizing firearms, so to speak, and understanding components and things like that. And then uh, so the transition was a little bit easier when I did end up. Uh, getting into actual firearms so from that uh, at, at what point was that transition for you where you did sort of get serious about uh, firearms and and maybe a little more specifically about training yeah yeah um so when i was working for trucking magazine uh one of my job duties was flying around the country going to truck shows custom truck shows um and usually it was by myself and pretty much always i had I would say three to five thousand dollars in camera gear uh, in my suitcase or in my my backpack as I was driving around in my rental car in areas that I was totally unfamiliar with, usually in the deep south. Um, and so that sort of made me realize, you know, I'm I'm driving through some not so good neighborhoods. I'm in a rental Corolla. I've got five grand worth of camera gear in, in the back, uh, and I really don't know what I'm doing as far as self defense in general. So if somebody wanted to victimize me, I've got kind of a target on my back at that point. I'm, I'm the out-of-towner with a bunch of expensive gear. Um, and so that sort of made me realize, yeah, maybe I need to take this a little bit more seriously and, and consider some rudimentary self-defense training or, or firearms training. Um, so at that point, I, I bought myself a Glock 19, which is you know a story of uh, half of the firearms owners on here, I'm sure. Yep. Uh, the first gun is a Glock 19. Um, so walked into the local gun store, bought a Glock 19. And then, uh, at that point I wasn't really considering training and, and, uh, concealed carry or anything like that as, as like a serious thing. It was more of a, I would say a talisman, like my gun sat in, in a holster on the bedside yep. and, and that was about it. I, I if, shot. If maybe... I have a gun, I will be safe. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the trap that a lot of people fall into, I'm sure. Cause you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so I figured, okay, you know, I've got it. So that's, that's good enough. Um, and, uh, only after I eventually started training did I realize that was not good enough. Well, like you said, you, uh, you, you, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. And I think, uh, so Jeff Cooper's got a, a fairly well-known quote 
that I don't remember fully, but it, basically it's something to the effect of uh, owning a gun does not make you armed any more than owning a guitar makes you a musician. Yeah, and like that's you said, a great I, one. I think it's a trap that, like you said, a lot of people fall into, Of you know, oh, and I've seen it. I've seen it with family members and friends and well, I've, I've got this thing and now I'm, I'm protected. Yep. Uh, and it's not until you you start really going down the rabbit hole that you realize, like, wow, this is I, I got to put some effort in. Right. Uh, I, I eventually did end up getting my my concealed carry permit in California, which is the thing. A lot of people don't realize that that's even possible only in certain counties. And it's a enormous process to go through. Was, I think it cost me like six hundred dollars, took several months. I had to go to the sheriff's department, give an in-person interview, write up a list of reasons why I needed to be allowed to carry a firearm and all these things. And eventually were, were you was, able to get through that on like the camera gear and travel thing? Yeah. So essentially I explained, you know, Hey, I travel to, uh, to remote areas. And of course, a lot of people want to say, Oh, you know, my reason is for self-defense. That's, that's the only reason I need to give not necessarily because they will deny you. Unfortunately, in some, in some cases, it depends on the officer you're dealing with and all that. But, uh, yeah, in my case, I, I just explained, here's what I do for uh, a profession. And I want to be able to defend myself until the time that law enforcement can arrive on scene, because that's the, the, the key. If you want to get approved, you, you can't make it sound like you're going to be out there doing vigilante stuff. Unfortunately, that's how it is. Yeah, well, you know, California is going to do California things. Yeah. What was the what was the uh, qualification? Like, did you guys have to shoot a qual? Yeah, we did have to shoot a qual. Um, my memory of this is a little bit rusty, but uh, I, I want to say it was like 21 rounds at uh, three yards, five yards, and seven yards into it like a standard silhouette target. It was really, really easy. Uh, and yet I saw people fail it. Uh, several people in the class with me ended up failing immediately. So uh, not, not reassuring necessarily, but that's why you get training. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in those those uh, early years of, of off-grid, uh, uh, while I was still kind of fully focused on recoil and, and while Patrick Bong was still here, yeah. uh, did you have any exposure at that point to doing more serious training on a routine basis? Um, not really. I mean, I, I, I did some, uh, I took a couple of classes and sat in, took photos and things like that. But primarily I was observing and writing about what was going on rather than experiencing it firsthand. And that's always, you know, working for the magazine. That's always the trap is like you end up seeing things, but rather than uh, experiencing them firsthand and going through the actual training, you're observing the training more and taking photos because you kind of have to. Yeah. Um, so, so I always wanted to train more, uh, but not until relatively recently did I start seriously training personally. Yeah, well, and I remember when, once I started becoming more involved with off grid, that was a, yeah. that was a discussion we had. I would say probably pretty much off the bat, as I remember, and and hence was born uh, the the final weapon column that we now right. have off grid magazine. So, uh, man, you might remember better than I do. When did we when did we start doing final weapon as a regular recurring column? Uh, I don't remember the issue, but I think it was in late twenty nineteen. Um, okay. So yeah, it's basically, you know, two years ago. Give or yeah. Take. So, yeah. So you're, so you're going on about two, two and a half years with that. And for, yeah. for those of you out there that aren't familiar, if you read off grid magazine, we now have a column in every single issue, uh, that Patrick runs called final weapon. And 
every installment of Final Weapon is a review of a training class, and it's it's a, it's a short review. It's down and dirty, but it's it's what are my lessons learned? And if you stick with off grid consistently, or you read the Final Weapon column consistently, one of my favorite things about it is it it is a living document of someone's training journey from i'll say almost zero plus yeah. or minus the california ccw qual uh to you know where you are now and where you're going to go in the future yeah so what do you remember what was your first let's call it serious training class and what like if you depending on what you remember because again now we're going back almost three years yeah psychologically what was that experience for you yeah, um, the, the, the first training class that I took that was serious, aside from, you know, the CCW quals and some, some basic uh, shooting, uh, was the Blue-Green Alliance class that was, I think, December of 2019. Uh, I took it with you, and uh, let's just say the average caliber of students in that class was very high. Uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, SWAT instructors for the local uh, sheriff's department. There were uh, several former uh, mill, former LE guys. I think I was only one of only two civilians in the class. Uh, and the other guy was basically a training junkie who was out there training all the time. Uh, so for that to be my first experience was sort of, um, you know, jump into the deep end immediately, which was uh, beneficial and also a little scary. Because, uh, I mean, th that class really pushed my limits and made me realize, like, man, I'm even more behind the curve than I thought it was, uh, which is humbling and uh, will uh, light a fire under your ass to, to get out there and actually train. And that's what it did for me. I was like, wow, I really need to put more time into this. And uh, that's essentially what spawned the final weapon and the idea of uh, training regularly. So from, from that kind of wake-up call moment to, yeah. to now, what would you say were, let's go with three. Okay. What were three of your biggest hurdles to overcome in terms of uh, A, improving as a shooter, um, and B, maybe becoming a better student, uh, going from kind of doing what a lot of people do, which is, oh, I got my CCW permit, I'm good, to yeah. like, no, this is like a lifelong cyclical, continuous process. You know, not only do I need to do this more, but I need to, you know, there, there is such a thing as being a better student. Yeah. You know, and so how, how, how did you overcome some of those, some of those hurdles? So uh, the, as far as three things that challenged me, I think the first one was uh, what most people struggle with, especially, you know, the classic Glock syndrome of shooting low left. Uh, and that's obviously, I know now that that's not exclusive to Glocks by any means, but like, uh, that was something that I struggled with always. Uh, and I think part of that was whatever you want to call it, recoil anticipation, uh, or just not having the fundamental of being prepared for the gun to go off when it goes off, so to speak. Um, and so dry fire was, was really, really helpful with that. Um, and, uh, just lots and lots of reps helped me work through that. Um, but also one of the things I found out pretty early on uh, that surprised me was that I'm left eye dominant. Uh, so essentially I was using my right shooting irons with my right eye. And I was always wondering why I was off target 
very slightly to the left. And it was essentially because my eyes were fighting each other the whole time when I was shooting. So when I realized I was left eye dominant, that, that alleviated some of that. Uh, and then, like I said, just lots of dry fire. Um, two more. So um, as I was shooting faster and faster and kind of uh, working on cadence, I realized my, my groups were opening up. Um, and one of the things that actually Blue Green Alliance mentioned this, uh, and this was the first time I'd heard about this, was reset to recoil. So resetting that trigger as you're coming back down off the recoil impulse and, and the slides leveling out, you should be ready to break another shot as soon as the, the sights are back on target. Uh, rather than pinning the trigger and waiting and clicking, um, which is something that I think a lot of new shooters are taught to understand how resetting the trigger works, but that in the long term kind of does a disservice and causes you to be way more deliberate about resetting the trigger than you should be. Um, so that was something that uh, getting used to resetting the recoil every single time and being able to uh, know when I was going to break the shot rather than, you know, staple gun gripping the gun and, and opening up my grips or my, my groups rather. Uh, that was uh, also helpful. And then uh, let's see. I would say uh, transitions between multiple targets was another one that I struggled with. Uh, a couple of things helped me with that. First, understanding moving my eyes and then moving the gun rather than bringing the gun with my eyes the whole way, which essentially causes you to overshoot the target because your eyes are jumping around looking for it or you're trying to, uh, to ambush it as a Jedi from a Modern Samurai Project told me during the most recent class. Um, you, you don't want to overrun the target as you're transitioning and by bringing your eyes to that target, then bringing the gun over, that helps uh, a lot with transitions. So that was something that was uh, helpful to me for sure. Yeah, I, I, I remember being in terms of transitions, I remember being taught years and years and years ago, you know, somebody once told me, oh, well, your, your entire upper body, like from your hips up, you should be moving like a tank turret, right? Yeah. Uh, and they don't, they don't talk about sort of separating eye movement from, from body right. movement. And so, yeah, you just do this sort of very robotic where everything is in a single, you know, it's like you just have a laser beam from the, the bridge of your nose right. um, and that's connected to the muzzle. And uh, yeah, it does. You, it's really easy to overdrive. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to talk a little bit, bit more about red dots specifically later on. Yeah. But I do want to ask, because you talked about eye dominance being an issue. Did you find as you have transitioned to shooting red dot pistols uh, over iron sights, has the transit, has the eye dominance issue become less significant? I would say, yeah, uh, it feels like it's become less significant to me just because I've gotten used to bringing the gun up to my left eye. Although I was already doing that with irons, learning uh, to use the red dot exclusively with my left eye from the beginning helped me not build uh, bad training habits from, from the get-go, which is essentially what I was doing when I was trying to learn irons and presenting irons with my right eye and then switch to the left eye. I started out with the left eye from the get-go with the red dot, so that, that helped a lot. Did you shoot irons both eyes open? Um, or is that a tr another, did you have to kind of make that jump when you went? Yeah, I had to make that jump. Definitely. I mean, I did the, the classic, you know, squinting or closing one eye. I, I look back at photos of myself, uh, 
early on and in, in before I had proper training and I was basically shooting almost like a weaver stance, which, you know, you, you do what you see other people on the range doing and you don't know any better. And, uh, now that I know better, I've improved a lot. Well, you know, and the other thing about firearms training is that for you, for such a, a, a technical tool, yeah. uh, so much of our training is anecdotal, right? Right. Well, I'm going to teach you to do it this way. Cause this is the way I got taught, you know, and sometimes that, that will span multiple generations. I'll say often, I think it spans multiple generations. And, you know, before, you know, a blink of an eye, we're teaching people stuff that's 40, 50 years old. And then for a while, I think that there really was not a whole lot of development in how to teach. And then, you know, in the era of, of the global war on terror, there has been so much evolution so fast that yeah. uh, unless you were exposed directly to that, uh, I think it's easy to kind of still be stuck in a lot of that anecdotal passing down of, of information that may or may not be the best methodology out there. Yeah, I, I remember recently I read that uh, book of two guns, uh, which was written right around that like pre global war on terror period, uh, and it included a lot of things that made me go, man, uh, training and stance and all these fundamental things that we take for granted now have changed so much in the last twenty years. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and I, I, I like that book, but it is it is definitely uh, it does illustrate very well the progression of, of things yeah. in yeah. very recent history. Yeah. So what would you say of, of all the classes that you've taken in, in the last going on three years, which I've, man, I don't know if you have a count. I, I don't have a number off the top of my head, but what would you say is the single most challenging course you've taken thus far? Uh, really probably the first one, just because uh, with Blue Green Alliance, just because I was, Honestly, I mean, I'm sure you saw this on the line next to me. I was beating myself up the whole class. So it's like, I, I, you know, I have a concealed carry permit. I thought I was a relatively competent shooter. And then I go out with people who've been shooting for years and years, in many cases, professionally and realize, no, you know, I have so much work to do. Uh, and so I was, I was trying to improve myself decades worth of improvement over the course of two days, which obviously is impossible. And, and uh, I, I walked away from that feeling kind of down about my, my own skill set. But then I realized, no, this is just motivation to, to improve. And that's where, the, you know, the column came from in the first place. Yeah, that's uh, that's tough, right? There's kind of this dichotomy about, you know, people say I hear it pretty often about, you know, you should always strive to surround yourself with people you know, in terms of a skill set or, or, a, a, you know, a trade or whatever, you know, strive to surround yourself with people that are better than you, because that's going to push you to be better. Yeah. Which is absolutely sage advice uh, yeah. in my experience over a couple of different careers, but it also is a little bit demoralizing. And you, you yeah. sometimes you think you might be ready for that. Like, all right, I know I'm kind of the junior guy here. So everybody's going to be a little bit better than me. And then it turns out they're like a lot better than you. Right. Uh, and you got to, that's, that is definitely something that, that takes time working through, but for anybody out there who may be kind of at that phase, uh, yeah. it's absolutely worth it. And that is not a, it's, it's emotional and it's not insurmountable. Yeah, not by any means. And, uh, it's important to maintain that perspective. Actually, after that class, you pulled me aside and I remember you said, you know, Hey man, keep in mind that these people have been doing this a long time. I've been doing this a long time and like, don't beat yourself up because 
what you're not seeing is all the work and time and hours that they've put in to get to this point right now to you, it looks easy. And it did, you know, a lot of these guys are just draw the gun and nail the bullseye. And, and I couldn't do that, but I didn't see everything that they put in leading up to that point. And now so don't beat you, yourself up. Yeah, exactly. And now here you are, you know, two years and some change later, and you have gone through all the hours and days and, and, changing gear and changing gear again and then modifying the <laughs> gear that you changed again which we're going to touch on here in a minute yep. but uh you know that's that's I'm, I'm it's been cool for me to watch that pan out for you from that taking that first deep breath after that blue green classic yeah. like, all right look these guys make it look easy because they've been doing it a ton you're going to get there but you're going to have to put the work in to get there and, and yeah. like i said here we are a couple of years later and um it's it's work mm-hmm so there might be some overlap here from from the last question we covered kind of what we felt like was the most challenging course for you top three favorite courses that you've taken mm, that's a tough one uh you you were asking me about how many classes that i've taken to this point like over the last couple of years it's got to be two dozen at least um and, and all of them for the most part basically all of them have been awesome i've learned so much in so many different areas ranging from like medical and comms all the way through uh you know pistol rifle a little bit of precision type stuff um so one of the ones that comes to mind is uh, i did a class with uh, cecil birch who's a um i believe he's one of the adjunct instructors for um craig douglas at uh um, at Shiv Works, Shiv yeah, Works. Shiv yeah, he's, yeah, he's in that sort of Shiv Works collective. I think it's four or five guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I wasn't sure how to phrase it, but yeah, he he's a phenomenal instructor. He did a class, uh, close contact handgun, uh, here in Arizona through uh, independence training, and uh, that was a lot of uh, shooting techniques I've never worked on before, as far as like retention shooting or shooting from positions where you don't have a full sight picture and understanding that you can shoot from those positions effectively and much more effectively than I thought you would be able to. Um, but then more importantly, combining that with, uh, verbal skills and movement and situational awareness and using a flashlight and, uh, a lot of other things that, you know, drinking from a fire hose was sort of what it felt like. And, or, or, uh, I think, uh, Cecil even said it, it's going to feel like, patting your head and rubbing your stomach. You're, you're trying to move your feet and talk and be aware of threats and, uh, you know, use your gun all at the same time. Uh, so that was, that was cool. And then especially, um, the class ended up doing, uh, UTMs, which are basically like sort of like simunitions, um, you know, pellet guns, high speed pellet guns, if you want to call it that grown up paintball. I like exactly. Yeah. Them, there, so. there you go. Um, and so we all strap on masks and we go out there and uh, some of the students were handed uh, UTM guns. Some of the students didn't have any weapons at all. And each one of us was told roles to play essentially in these scenarios. And, you know, maybe you're uh, a homeless guy walking up looking for some spare change. Maybe you're just a bystander who's trying to jump in and help the situation. So you have like four or five people. You don't know who's a threat, who's not a threat, or if there is a threat at all. Uh, which is very realistic in terms of training. And so um, we walked into these situations and maybe somebody just draws on you out of the blue. Maybe uh, maybe nothing happens and you're supposed to walk away. Uh, so that was very eye-opening and stressful. <laughs> uh, 
uh, definitely got shot a few times, but um, I, I think that's uh, it helps you break away from the flat range mentality of like, okay, I'm going to stand in this booth in an indoor range and shoot holes in paper for half an hour and call it good in terms of training. There's so much more to it than that in terms of uh, real gunfighting, if you will. Yeah, I, um, I think I think one of the most stressful things for me personally going into like force on force training yeah. is when the scenario is built for nothing to happen because you, yeah. know, you get you get in kind of a schoolhouse mindset right you're used to every every time i go to the range what do i do i pull out my gun and shoot every time i train in in the vast majority of classes you go to shooting classes you drive yeah. and you shoot right. uh, and then you wind up in some of the more unconventional force on force stuff and, and cecil is absolutely awesome at what he does uh Highly recommend him to anybody out there who might be in the area. Uh, yeah. He does go on the road some if you can catch him. He's absolutely a bucket list instructor. But uh, yeah, when to, to have those scenarios thrown in where it's deliberately designed that like, no, you're, the whole point is just to walk in and then walk out because sometimes nothing happens. Yeah, more uh, often than not. <laughs> more often than not, right. Uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for that more often than most of the situations that I've found myself in that look like it's about to go sideways real quick and it doesn't. Yeah. I'm thankful for it, but in a training environment, you get in that that mindset of like, oh, well, obviously I'm going to have to do some shooting at some point and it doesn't happen. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. In, in a couple of instances, we actually uh, had people who were instructed to back down as soon as the gun comes out. So, you know, somebody's threatening you, they, they're running up on you, you draw the gun and they immediately back down. And that's an important scenario because maybe that happens in the real world and you, you don't want to shoot somebody who all of a sudden is not a threat. So yeah. training for that is really important. Um, but yeah, back uh, back to the question, uh, more classes. So that's one. Um, medical skills are something that I believe is really undervalued um, or at least undertrained, maybe not undervalued. A lot of people uh, mention, you know, okay, carry a tourniquet if you're going to be carrying, if you're going to uh, carry a gun or, or carry a tourniquet if you're going to go to the range. That's great, but you have to know how to use that. Um, and so I took a class with uh, Dark Angel Medical uh, here in Phoenix as well. Um, it was basically a two-day class with um, classroom portions, PowerPoint stuff, and then also practical uh, exercises, and demos, and things like that where we were essentially working on other students. Uh, they would be told, uh, here's the condition that you have. Don't be able to explain this to the other person. Just tell them symptoms. And then uh, we basically had to treat each other in these simulated situations, uh, whether that meant applying a tourniquet or a pressure dressing or uh, just trying to keep the person calm. Um, that was really interesting and also, I think, very applicable to, uh, you know, if you're going to carry a tool that's capable of punching holes in people, you need to be able to plug holes. Uh, so uh, training in that was really important to me. Um, Third one, uh, most recently we, we talked about that uh, Modern Samurai Project class, uh, went up to Prescott, Arizona for, for three days and that was all um, appendix carry and red dot focused, which are, are two things. I mean, appendix carry I've been doing for a while now, so I'm a little bit more used to that, but um, red dot is something that I'm still trying to get up to speed on. Um, for a long time, I told myself, I'm gonna keep working iron sights because I want to be really solid on the fundamentals of working iron sights before I transition to red dot. And I think in some ways that's a good idea. And in other ways I was, uh, handicapping myself a little bit. I would show up to classes and I would be one of the only people still running irons. 
and uh, kind of felt behind the curve. And I, I started asking myself, like, why am I forcing myself to stick with irons if there's something that's going to improve my capabilities uh, to defend myself? Like, why, why would you handicap yourself in the real world? You want every advantage you can possibly have. So at that point, I started uh, switching over to Red Dot and... The modern samurai project class was really, really uh, helpful with a lot of things that I hadn't even thought about uh, that were important related to running a red dot. Uh, one of which was being target focused with a handgun. Uh, I mean, for the longest time running iron sights for as long as I did, you learn to be front sight focused. Uh, and you can't do that with the red dot. You have to be target focused and be aware of, of the dot on the target but you don't want to be concentrating on that dot. And that was part of my problem. My groups were opening up because I was chasing the dot as a uh, Jedi puts it. Um, and I was, I was hyper aware of, Oh, the, the dots moving a little bit as I'm moving my hands on target. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily notice that with iron sights because, you know, much larger and, uh, more of a gross sight picture, I guess you could say, but, um, yeah, watching that dot bounce around on the target and then, trying to tense up and tighten my grip and all those things were causing my groups to open up. Uh, so just understanding that uh, and focusing on the target was really helpful and uh, something that I've been practicing a lot lately. Yeah, well, I mean, we could do a we could do a whole episode just on on red dot stuff. And we'll yeah. save that save that for another day. But I, you know, you, you made a couple of really good points. I think a lot of people I've had a lot of people that I work with kind of informally friends and family, uh, say the same thing, you know, that you hit, that you did early on there about, uh, you know, well, I want to get really good at irons first. And it's sort of viewed as a progression. I've got to master the irons and then I, uh, you know, I'm allowed to start shooting red dot. Yeah. And that's, uh, even I kind of fell into that for a couple of years. I was, I was kind of slow to get on the, the red dot pistol train and, uh, it was, it was night and day once I did. Um, and I, I've, again, talking about passing things down anecdotally, maybe I'm right. kind of being a little bit of a hypocrite here, but I, I, I have seen a more than a couple shooters really invest the time and effort into shooting red dot. And then they go back to irons and they, they wind up being better shooters all around, um, regardless of whether they're on optics or irons, you know, yeah. which, uh, I, that's, I'm sure that's not the case for everybody out there, but I, I certainly have seen it. Yeah. 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 yeah that, that, that uh, training with Jedi is another one. Talk about drinking from a fire hose. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. a lot of material. That was another one of those classes that was kind of humbling, but also, uh, you know, really taught me a lot. So I'm glad I took that one for sure. So uh, of the let's, let's stick with two dozen ish classes that you've taken uh they they've been in a kind of in in terms of if you look at your your training from top down right you've kind of been taking classes as they come up as they're available which is probably what everybody does right well i'm going to take the class that's happening right now that i can yeah. afford that i have ammo for that i can make it to schedule wise right um there hasn't been a there hasn't been a, a, a formalized progression for you, right? Uh, coming from, from the military side of things, there's a very sort of rigid structure, you know, okay, well, if we're going to talk about holistic weapons training, you know, you're going to start with your carbine because that's your main weapon and you're going to do 
you know, fundamentals first and then dry fire and then irons and then optic. And then once you've gotten all that, then we're going to reset and we're going to go to pistol because that's your secondary weapon. And then you're, you're going to go through dry fire and then irons. And, and now, you know, even big mill is starting to kind of look at optics in some places. Um, but there's, there's sort of a very structured progression and, and you haven't right. really had that. And again, most, most people don't have the time and the money and the budget to go, okay, well, I'm only going to take these classes because I need to learn pistol first and then I will progress to rifle and then progress to shotgun or whatever. So you've kind of bounced around in terms of subject matter in the Definitely. courses that you've taken. If you could go back and structure it better, or I don't want to say better, that's the wrong word. If you could structure it more rigidly in terms yeah. of, of training progression, would you do that? Or do you think that kind of bouncing around not haphazardly, but kind of rotating through medical and tactics and pistol and carbine, uh, you know, sort of hodgepodge as you're able to, would you say that there's a benefit to that making you kind of more rounded as a, as a shooter, as you go through this progression, or, you know, do you think that maybe it might be more beneficial to do a, a more linear structured progression? Yeah. Um, good question. I, I think, uh, bouncing around the hodgepodge worked for me. Uh, maybe it won't work for everyone, but um, not becoming overly focused on one particular skill set, um, I think it's beneficial just because you can get sucked into to focusing too much on one thing. You can get sucked into like, okay, I'm going to spend all my time on training with a carbine, and then maybe you're neglecting other skills and you don't even realize it. So bouncing around from class to class and, and, and different, uh, you know, soft skills, so to speak, uh, taking counter custody with Ed Calderon, uh, stuff that was totally uh, outside my wheelhouse, lock picking and uh, breaking out of zip ties and uh, the, the mental aspects of uh, having somebody take you captive, you know, even if, if that's a, a 0.0001% chance of that happening to me, understanding and having that confidence that I've gone through this before, uh, is helpful. Um, and, and a lot of the things that you learn apply to other skill sets that you, in ways that you wouldn't necessarily think about. So, uh, training handgun a lot when most of the classes I've taken have focused on handgun skills in some way. Uh, I think that's helped me become a much better shooter with carbines and shotguns understanding stance and trigger control and sight picture and a lot of the fundamentals and then also layering in movement and things like that all of a sudden you improve in those areas without even focusing on those areas so by bouncing around and having kind of a balanced training regimen um i, I think that's been been helpful and, and to a certain degree, some of those skills that you talk about, stance and things like that, uh, yeah. are, are, I'll say universal. That might not really be totally accurate, but, you know, a good stance is a good stance regardless of, of what the weapon is that you're holding. Right. right? And, and maybe you modify it a little bit. You learn what works best for each, each uh, weapon platform. But universally, in general, if you've got a good foundation, you've got a good foundation. For sure. So we've obviously spent a lot of time on training. Uh, let's talk about gear. Uh, you know, yeah. they, they, they go hand in hand. I think people oftentimes, especially if they're kind of starting it, you know, starting new there, there's a, a, a preconceived notion of what they need to have, whether yeah. that's a particular make and model of gun or whether that's how many magazines or accessories or modifications that they need to perform. Uh, a, a lot of people go into, 
you know, go into this with an idea of what they need. And if they stick with it long enough, I would argue most of those ideas that they started with wind up getting changed uh, or, you know, completely or partially along the way. Yeah. So with a pretty substantial amount of training under your belt versus where you started when you first, you know, you bought that first G19, because again, well, that's what everybody's got. Yeah. Uh, what have you changed? What are some modifications that you've made? What are some modifications that you've made and then modify those modifications? Yeah. Um, what you said there, as far as like training exposes things that you need to change that you hadn't considered. Um, that's extremely true. Uh, everyone says, you know, get out there and train, get out there and train. But I went out there and trained and the gear that I went to my first class with, I don't have any of that gear anymore. Um, or I do have it, but I'm not using it for that purpose. Um, my, the, the first gun that I bought was that Glock 19, but the first gun that I carried was not the Glock 19 because being in California, I was really concerned about any kind of printing because, you know, if somebody thinks, even thinks that you have a firearm, you're going to have a very uncomfortable conversation with law enforcement, most likely, unfortunately. Um, and so I really wanted solid concealment. So I went down to a, a Smith Weapon shield. Um, and I'm six, five, I've got big hands. I'm a big dude in general and carrying a gun that small with seven round capacity was not a good choice. Not for me. Um, but of course I, I thought, okay, I want something I can conceal well, but I didn't really think I want something that I can shoot well. I figured, okay, I'll at least have something. But uh, in retrospect, carrying a gun that you shoot well is, at least for me, more important than carrying a gun that maybe doesn't print a little bit or prints a little bit less. Um, so I eventually transitioned back to the Glock 19, carrying that every day. And now, uh, currently, I'm carrying a Glock 45, which, for those not familiar, is basically a 17 frame with a 19 length slide. Um, so, yeah, uh, just the, the key and the takeaway from all that is get out there and train, take the gear that you have, and you'll learn a lot, and, and maybe it'll change, and that's okay. Maybe you go out there and you, you run four or five drills, and you go, man, this isn't working, or this is really uncomfortable, or... Uh, I don't have enough rounds on my person for this, for this particular drill. Uh, and then you, you learn and you adjust your gear accordingly. In that same vein, uh, I, I warned you, we were going to circle back to this. You, you did, I would say fairly recently transition yep. to really going full time with a, with a red dot, uh, equipped pistol with that G45. So how was that? And again, I, we touched on it a little bit, but, but a little bit deeper. How was that transition for you? You did finally get over that hump of like, I don't have to master my irons first. Yeah. The bottom line is you're never truly going to master it. There'll always be some room for improvement, whether it's yeah. speed or accuracy or whatever, but you know, everybody's always going to have room to get better. Uh, so you got over that hump and you said, all right, well then I'm going to, I'm going to make the, the jump. I'm going to go to the red dot. So, right. Um, in terms of classes you took and in terms of, I don't know, gear selection, what, what was that transition like for you? Did you go through a couple of dots before you found one you liked? Did you find once you went to the dot, is that maybe part of what brought you back to Glocks off of other guns? Um, you know, what did that, what were some of the side effects of that for you? Yeah. Um, transitioning to a dot wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be, honestly. Uh, I mean, 
how many people go out there and shoot red dots on on carbines basically everyone at this point or at least you have some experience with that and so yeah finding the dot on presentation every time is still challenging um to some extent uh it was especially challenging at first and you know i struggled with the classic fishing around for the dot trying to find it in the window that kind of thing but um one of the things that uh i heard i think this was from nick saidi at uh, secret weapon training competition shooter, phenomenal, like USPSA grandmaster in every discipline, I believe. Um, he taught me something that was, uh, that stuck with me, which is practice presenting the gun with your eyes closed. So, you know, basically bring the gun up to where you think it should be with your eyes closed and then open your eyes and look at what your sight picture looks like. Maybe the dots off to the left of the window every single time. If that's the case, then you know, you need to make this adjustment to your your stance to your grip um and so practicing that and combining that with dry fire just drawing over and over and over again with my eyes closed opening my eyes looking at the sight picture and eventually you're still going to have some variance maybe it's halfway out of the window to one side maybe it's halfway to the other side next draw but you're going to get more consistent over time as you practice that so that was really helpful and then uh you know, just getting in live fire reps, going to that uh, Modern Samurai Project class that focused specifically on Red Dot uh, made a big difference. So you, you had talked about, okay, well, I bought a Glock 19 and then I wound up carrying a shield. Yeah. And I, I know you spent a little bit of time uh, on the Walter PDP platform. And then as some of us wind up doing all things lead all roads lead back to Glock, right? Uh, for some of us. And, and here you are again with a red dot equipped 45. So as you've kind of gone through a few different sizes, shapes, makes models of pistols, yep. uh, what at this point, what would you consider your criteria for selecting a carry pistol um, size versus concealability feature sets that you have realized are kind of more important to you than others, et cetera. Sure. Um, so like I said, and like you mentioned, I, I started out going to one extreme and saying, okay, I need maximum concealability uh, because I don't ever want anyone to have any inkling that I'm carrying a gun. Um, and when you go too far to that extreme, you're going to have other side effects of that. Uh, one of which from carrying a subcompact single stack is low ammunition capacity. Uh, and then of course you can, you can put uh, larger capacity mags in it, but then you're basically working your way back up to a, a compact or a full size. So, um, yeah, I, I would say everything is a balance, right? Um, I ended up going back up to the Glock 19 double stack because I started doing more realistic training, doing more scenario-based training. Uh, I went to Haley Strategic and shot one of their, uh, D5 or D7 simulator classes, uh, and realizing how many in, in a stressful situation, they, they put one of those, uh, it's called a threat fire pack. They put this on your waistline. It's basically like a, not a taser, but like a, you know, strong electric shock. If you end up getting shot in the scenario, you're going to get zapped and it's not comfortable. Uh, you're, you're in a dark room. Everyone's watching you. Your heart rate gets elevated. Um, realizing that, maybe I'm not as accurate, maybe I'm not as uh, fast on the draw in those circumstances, made me realize that uh, 
I need to skew more towards having a gun that I'm a hundred percent confident with, uh, having a little bit of extra capacity, a little bit of extra breathing room in that regard. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe I print a little bit from time to time, but realize that, uh, in some cases that's okay. Uh, maybe that's controversial to say, but like going too far towards concealability, uh, might cause you to not be able to win the fight if the fight happens. Well, and, and some of it is, is what I call shootability, which is admittedly, it's kind of an arbitrary term, right? But, you know, physics are physics. Teeny tiny guns are, are harder to shoot. Yeah. Uh, the the there... shield was super snappy. Yep. Uh, and, and to be honest, I didn't enjoy shooting it. So I didn't practice as much with it as I should have. And then that compounds, you end up not being as capable with it as you should be. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the irony there is that the gun that you, for a lot of people, right, those smaller subcompacts and, and pocket nines and things like that, the gun that you're most likely to carry because it's the most convenient to carry is also right. requires the most practice, but it's also the gun that you will likely practice the least with because right. it's not comfortable. Yeah. And, so and for, the, for you, especially being a bigger guy, did, did grip size really become more of a factor the more you shot? Absolutely. And, and we talked about the low left thing. Uh, that, as I transitioned to a larger gun, that diminished dramatically. And that was just because I had more real estate to work with. I could build a more solid grip. You know, minor things, even like um, getting an undercut uh, so I could accommodate my hands on the grip better. Uh, that's really helpful and it, it improved my consistency and my accuracy. Um, and then also you get the benefit of having more capacity, obviously, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you to go out there and carry a race gun. That's going to stick out of your waistband, like a foot, <laughs> but, uh, at the same time, don't force yourself to carry a, a, a subcompact if that's not what works for you. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that, that printing stuff can be accommodated with a little trial and error on the wardrobe side. Yep. Right. Which I'm sure you figured out and how you carry for some people, depending on body size, shape, type, et cetera, you know, appendix works for a good amount of people, but it doesn't work yep. for everybody. And body type definitely plays into that. Um, you know, have you found, have you found you've pretty much stuck with appendix though, through the whole process? I have, um, I've made some modifications to, you know, holsters and things like that. Uh, most recently I, I've started carrying with a, uh, a, a teardrop or a, a foam wedge, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, I, my holster now is a LAS concealment. Um, they sent me one of their teardrops to, to try out. Cause I had mentioned during the modern samurai project class, like I, I you know, what, what are your thoughts on this? Is this worth trying? And, uh, I found that it's improved comfort, especially like if I'm sitting in the car for an extended period with that appendix holster. It doesn't dig into your groin as much. Uh, so yeah, just uh, spending time with the setup will, will teach you those things. For sure. And, and, and holster selection is, is, I would say, vitally important. If you're serious about carrying, carrying all day or for long yeah. periods, uh, you know, everything from one clip versus two clips to so now there's wings and wedges and foam blocks and, right. uh, you know, all kinds of stuff out there. So uh, for those that are, are maybe you know, are or maybe more concerned about that, that printing issue, whether it's jurisdiction or personal preference or whatever, uh, that's, you know, holster 
holster selection is it becomes critical and and yeah. it does i would argue based on my experience that uh carrying a bigger gun is easier with the right holster yeah and yeah. that could make the difference between whether you print or not in addition to kind of the wardrobe thing but holster selection um having a good holster that sits in a position that works for you and your daily routine and your do you bend over a lot do you reach up high on high shelves a lot do you sit in a yep. car a lot uh you know all factors in yeah, and, and don't tell yourself, I can't carry this way until you've given it a serious shot. Uh, you know, find a friend that this comes down to, to making friends during training. Uh, make some friends who have uh, good holsters that they really like and then say, hey, can I borrow one of your spare holsters for a couple of days and wear it around the house and so on. Um, you, you may find that their setup works a lot better for you. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're set, you, you can carry a way that you didn't think you could previously. So on that note, kind of want to want to put a bow on this. Uh, you know, you've had a, you've had a very well-documented uh, and, and substantial progression uh, over the last couple of years, yeah. starting again from, you know, somebody as much as we all love to rag on California, you know, behind enemy lines and all that, but yeah. from, from a very restrictive carry environment to where you maybe didn't get you know, a lot of opportunity to practice and, and, you know, uh, to train, to being, again, going through this sort of this progression and, and getting to where you are now, based on everything you've learned, what advice would you give to the, the millions upon millions of new gun owners that we've seen crop up in, in, in the last two years that you have spent really dedicating effort to that training? What advice would you give to them starting out and, and about tackling some of their issues, whatever they may be? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of this is fresh in my mind because, like you mentioned, you know, I, I haven't been uh, training seriously for long, so so I've just gone through this. So, you know, if you're just getting started on the journey, then like I, I've experienced that as well. Uh, it's not easy, but like the the big thing is uh, get out there and train. That's that's the biggest piece of advice. If you take one thing away from this, get out and train with qualified instructors. Uh, not necessarily just whoever's close or, you know, maybe the, the dude at the local range, get online, do some research on good trainers in your area who are, are vetted, have solid credentials, uh, maybe talk to some friends who've done training in the area and, and see what they recommend. Uh, that goes back to surround yourself with people who are better shooters than you or are, are, are more experienced in any skill set, medical, comms, whatever. Um, try to surround yourself with people who are knowledgeable about those things and then ask them, what, what do you recommend? How did you learn? Uh, and, and that will, uh, will help you, uh, find good instructors, uh, that you can invest time and money into. Um, talking about a recent event, uh, out Buffalo, uh, you know, and, and, and seeing some of the, the video, which is horrifying from that event of the way that guy was shooting understand that we have this assumption that, okay, you know, bad guys, people who are looking to cause harm are just crazy people. They're, they're frantically shooting, whatever. Um, some of those guys are training seriously. Some of those guys, maybe it's the exception to the rule, but some of those guys are very capable. Uh, and, and we shouldn't underestimate that. And we should use that as motivation to train to a higher level uh, because maybe good enough is not good enough for you right now. Um, it certainly wasn't looking back at my own skill set when I, when I got my concealed carry permit initially, 
was I competent? Yeah. Was I safe? Yeah. But was I as trained as I should be to, to handle a real world threat? No. Um, but I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, so definitely again, train, train seriously. Um, what else? As far as gear goes, uh, you can obsess over it. You can, you can spend all this time online reading about it. And, and, uh, you know, as car people would say bench racing, basically like, okay, well, well, this spec is slightly better in this one regard rather than just accepting what you have and getting out there. That That's the big thing. Don't stop yourself from training because you don't have the highest end, most expensive, perfect gear setup. Um, get out there and train with what you have now. Obviously you're going to need some basics. You're going to need a, a decent, reliable firearm. You're going to need a decent holster for it. Uh, Tidex holster. Uh, you're going to need a couple of mags. You're going to need a good belt. That's something else that, uh, we didn't mention during, during the holster portion, uh, of our discussion earlier, get a good belt, um, something that's sturdy and rigid and can support your holster properly. Um, and then, you know, get some eye and ear pro and, and at that point, just go train because that gear will probably end up getting replaced or swapped out or shuffled around, whatever. Um, and, and you'll only realize that after you get out and train with it. Yeah. Just like diet and exercise, right? There's no shortcuts. You just got to do it. Yep. Yep. For sure. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. And hopefully we have uh, encouraged some people out there who, um, you know, are just starting out or, or have hit a plateau or are intimidated by the training journey. Um, but it's, it, it is absolutely attainable, whatever your goal is. Right. Yeah. So thank you for taking the time. Uh, this has been Recoil Live presented by FN. We really thank you and appreciate you tuning in and we will see you next time. Thanks guys.